and I survived the sales, sir. I survived the pits, the fish, and take some home to Lizer. Good afternoon. It's time for Boat Talk here on our community radio, WERU-FM Blue Hill and WERU.org. Boat Talk is WERU's boating show, temporarily pre-recorded until we can come back into the studio. So we're not able to take phone calls today. You can listen to previous Boat Talks going back about 20 years They can be found at weru.org in the Public Affairs drop-down. We'll launch this show, as usual, with John Johansson and the Boatyard Report. All right. Uh, You know, this month I've been in several boat shops, as usual, but I went into Joe Lowell's. He's got two of his family's boats in there. Uh, one that Royal built, which is Royal. Uh, it was named after uh, Royal Lowe because he was the designer and the builder, but unfortunately passed away while the boat was under construction. And she was finished off as a lobster boat, and she headed to Martha's Vineyard. And she hasn't been upkept the best. And so, you know, they started replacing her keel last year, and they had a lot of problems getting good wood. And sometimes uh, Joe would have pieces of the keel cut and it would check and he'd have to replace it. And finally they've got the keel so that they're now just shaping it. And she should be at this point, she, the keel should be in her. The other boat is called Harpoon and people on MDI might know her, but I'm not sure that's her original name. Uh, But she went to MDI early on in her career. She was built in 1969 by the Lowell's. And I think it was built by actually Carol at even keel but anyways so she's in there and they've done a lot of work to her keel they've reframed uh uh they refastened and now they're starting to reframe the last six frames uh, from the uh transom forward then they're going to do some of the some of the stem and the forefoot and then they're going to do some more reframing up there but those are going to be sister frames which joe doesn't really like to do but under the circumstances, he said the bill would be extravagant if you had to start doing it the, 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 the way he would prefer to do it, which is actually put in full length uh, framing. So those are the two boats going on there. And he has a possibility of doing a 40 foot uh, Royal Lowell design or one of his father's designs, uh, brand new boat. So that could be the next thing that comes on the horizon for uh uh, Joe, Joe's actual boat shop is not called uh, Lowell. It's actually called Downey's uh, Custom Boats. And they're in the same location that Lowell Brothers used to be in, which is down next to uh, Green Marine. And for those that travel uh, Route 1 or 295, if you go past the, uh, the muddy rudder in Yarmouth and you look down in the marsh, you'll see multi hulls. Well, that's Green Marine. And for those that don't know, Walter Green is the head of that. And Walter is more famous in England than he is in the United States. And it's all because of multi-hulls. Every French person knows who Walter Green is. And he's hardly known here in the States unless you're a multi-hull person. Bruce Farron's shop I was in, uh, 
He's got a 42 and a 46 muscle ridge in there. The 46 is being finished out as a, basically a, a, a work boat uh, for a clammer out of New Jersey. The 42 is being finished out as a pleasure boat. And I believe she's going again to the West Coast. He sends a lot of boats to the West Coast. He just finished a Wayne Beal 36 full-fledged yacht. It was finished in April. They launched her. And the owners came here from California and sailed her down into Buzzard Bay, around Newport. Then all the way, came back all the way up here and spent all summer until about Oh, maybe three or four weeks ago, and they loaded it on a trailer. That was a little of an escapade because they brought the wrong trailer and it was over height. So they had to bring in a low boy and so they could actually truck it across the country. Uh, but they had an incredible time uh, running around the coast. And he's got a no number of uh, boats in the, in the works to do. He's actually got another state boat to do for the Maine Marine Patrol. And that's coming up. And that'll be a Calvin 42 hull. Uh, I was in Joe Sargent's shop. He's in Millbridge. Uh, he's finishing off a Crowley 33 as a lobster boat. It's a relatively simple boat. Uh, he also has a couple of 23s going. But he does that in uh, association with Bagaduce boats and SNS boats. They're in the old Penn Bay uh, boat shop, which is down in Sedgwick. Uh, and then Peter Buxton, uh, he's been busy. Of course, he finished up uh, Mainted Bray's boat, which is a Mackinac boat that was built in the early 60s. And uh, the main problem with her was they, they had to make sure that the uh, platform and the structure under the platform was good. And when they removed it, it actually was. And then they had to put the boat kind of back in shape. And then they put, added some more structure. But it wasn't a big, big job. And uh, she went over... Uh, uh, late spring and uh but then he's also been working on satchem which is a boat that was built in the early 30s on swans island and uh he just finished her and she's just been in the water the where he was that he had decided to put in a diesel engine she had a slant six chrysler engine in her and of course those don't take up a lot of room and he was worried when he ordered the diesel engine that it took up a little more room than he than he thought but actually, he says if he can get around it, anybody can get around it. And so it's not a big deal. Uh, so she's in the water. I haven't heard how she's gone yet, uh, any speeds or anything like that. But she's a great looking boat. And if anybody can tell who she is, because she's got a dustpan stern. So it's a reverse stern that looks just like a dustpan. And uh, I was also in Wayne Beale's boat shop. The big project there, of course, is Alvin. Um, Alfred Osgood's new boat coming out uh, right now. She was down at Dennis Weldings and they were trying to get her hydraulics finished. They were also waiting for some throttle cables, I believe, for the engine, which didn't come with the engine for some reason. So they were waiting for those. And uh, she's a Wayne Beale 36 with hard chines and they put a 1400 horsepower man in her. So that boat will probably go quite well. Uh, so she should be in the water by now, but I haven't heard anything from Jeremy because Jeremy's doing those projects. He's got plenty of work to do right now. He's laying up a couple of 42s. He's got a, I believe he's got a slippery 38, which is a young brother's 38, which is their first 38 footer that they were building. 
And there's one of those that he needs to uh, refurbish and get ready. He also has a Stanley that was uh, in a collision and she's getting some work done. Uh, he got hit on the port side and damaged the, uh, the uh, joint between the hull and the deck. And he also did some damage to the cabin. So that'll all get fixed this winter. Uh, then I went to Eric Dow's. Eric has always got interesting things going on. But he was just getting ready to ship a Haven 12 and a half uh, that he kind of refurbished. It had never been in the water, but it's been finished for a long time. And so she is now going to new owners in Holton, Maine. So it's going to be one of the first <laughs> Haven 12 and a half to have gone to a lake in Holton. <laughs> so hopefully it's a big lake. Yeah. But anyways. <laughs> and then for those that haven't heard, there was a guy that was poking around the coast the last couple of years, and we've now just got the new book, and it's by Daniel Sheldon Lee, and it's on the main lobster boat. Now, I gave him quite a bit of information, not everything I've got, because that would have kept him here a long, long time. But he actually interviewed a lot of the main uh, people who build lobster boats, design lobster boats, or have something to do with lobster boats. So the book is coming out. I believe it was supposed to be released middle of this month. And I know that um, Columbus Day weekend, uh, the Penobscot Marine Museum is planning to have a book signing for the book. So that will be will be available pretty soon. OK, it'll, it'll be interesting to uh, have a Zoom with him in the future. OK, yeah, we can arrange that. That's yeah. easy. OK, and you want to talk about lobster boat racing? Yes. Yep. Okay, well, the season's all over, 11 races done. And, you know, it's, it's, kind, of a, a, it, it's kind of a good time and a bad time because I really enjoy doing it, but it really takes a lot of time to run on these things. But, you know, in Winter Harbor, we had 100 boats there. Uh, the big winner of the day, or the fastest boat, of course, was Maria's Nightmare. And that's Jeremy Beal's boat. And he's the one that set the record at 68.3 at Bass, at uh, Musabek Reach. Well, he called me up just before the race and said, well, call her old Smokey because uh, I should have replaced more pistons than I did. Uh. And he was actually able to get her to run his, his uh, class race, which is class L. And we clocked him at 56 miles an hour. But after that, he said the fuel, it got too much fuel into the pistons and it couldn't burn it. So it would lock down. So he only made that run. Really, he ran in the last race of the day, but he got fifth place. But there were some really good races there, uh, you know, which is typical. A lot of big boats, not as many as we normally see, but still 100 boats. It's the most we've got at any of the events this year. But the big winner for the day is probably going to be La Bella Vida actually took the win. And it was a battle between he, that now that's Jeff Eaton from uh, Stonington, Deer Isle, actually lives on Deer Isle, and Janice Elaine, which is David Myrick's boat. What's interesting is they both have the same type of boat and the same engine. And they are within feet of each other. It's, some, it's who gets the jump on the line. And David actually won the class, which is class K, and he won the diesel free-for-all. But Jeff Eaton uh, eked him out for the fastest lobster boat of the day. Then we went down to Pemaquid, 
And Pemaquid's always fun because Pemaquid has different uh, uh, classes. And so it's not a points race. It's the only race on the schedule that is not a points race. So what usually happens is that boats race different people, and that can be really interesting. And that whole weekend, that whole thing was dominated by Blue Eyed, uh, by Blue Eyed Girl, which is Andrew Taylor's boat out of uh, uh, Southport Island. And he has a Northern Bay 38 with a 900 horsepower. I believe it's an FTP engine in it or a Scania. Maybe he's got a Scania, one of them. And uh, but anyways, and La Bella Vida actually went from Winter Harbor. Of course, he's going to stop at Stonington, uh, Deer Islands and stay over. And then the next morning, he got up early enough and he made it all the way to Pemaquid to, to do the Pemaquid race. And he, he just came up a little short. He just can't get by Blue Eyed Girl, which can do almost 50 miles an hour. So that was the dominating boat that day. Uh, then the last two races, we headed down to Long Island. And unfortunately, Long Island, we only got, uh, I believe, 46 boats, which is sort of normal. Uh, but it, you'd like to see more participation. It's a great venue. Uh, we race a little different there because we don't actually start the races till noontime. But a couple of the gas boats have shown up because see gas boats, you know, normally there's no gas boats left that really haul. There may be a few, but there's a, really just a few. It's mostly dominated now the whole thing by uh, diesel boats. And so, again, the big boat, the big winner for that day was Blue Eyed Girl. And uh, there was nobody that was beating him. The other sad thing is, is that in most of these races, very few wooden boats. Uh, there was no boats in, uh, in Winter Harbor, uh, in the wooden boat class, in either of the two classes. There were in Pemaquid. There was like, three or four wooden boats there for that. But at Long Island, and there were uh, several boats in the wooden boat class at Portland. But of course, like I said, the big winner uh, was uh, at uh, Blue Eyed Girl until they got to the final race of the day and uh, Down East Nightmare, which is one of Jeremy Beale's old boats that is now powered with a big gas engine, uh, basically came up the course. And anybody who follows my Facebook page got to see three shots of her coming out of the water, crashing into the next wave, and then coming out of the water again. Uh, hmm. The boats. I think if you gave it much more horsepower, it would be a lot more unstable than what it is now. <laughs> so anyways, it ended up the fastest lobster boat race. It was Down East Nightmare winning and Blue-Eyed Girl second with LaBelle LaVita third. Now in the final race of the year, and this one's special because this is a race that we actually do. Uh, we raise funds for the scholarship for Maine fishermen and it's in cahoots with uh, the Maine Fishermen's Forum. So all the money, a lot of money is donated. Instead of the fishermen taking their prize money, they give it back. And, uh, and all of the entry fees go to this. Uh, Katie Warner runs this. She owns a lobster restaurant on Peaks Island and her husband's a fisherman, uh, Tom Warner. He has one of the nicest looking Novi boats you'll ever see in your life. It's beautiful. It's kept well. And uh, But anyways, uh, we actually had a boat, a wooden boat that came all the way up from Gloucester called Seabound. Seabound is a J. Irvin Jones boat. And uh, 
she was the only boat in her class, so she didn't have any problems winning it. But what we did get to see was the Dugas's brought out all three of their uh, Peter Cass boats. So all three of them raced in the, uh, the upper wooden boat class. So Rolling Stone actually took the, the win with Sandala's three second, which is Scott Dugas's boat, and Delusional, which is another Alan Dugas boat. She took third. But the top boat for the day was Downey's Nightmare again. He was able to stay in front of the diesel boat. Now, I'm not sure he might have been able to do that with uh, Blue-Eyed Girl, but he didn't have to race Blue-Eyed. He only comes one time because he doesn't like staying on his boat. So he goes back to uh, Southport Island, which is up by Booth Bay, and he's not going to come back again because it's a two-hour steam probably to get from Booth Bay to Portland. So Downey's Nightmare won with LaBelle LaVita second. So now it's on to the, uh, the final thing of the year, which is the banquet. And we host that at Robinson's Wharf on Southport Island. And it's always a good time, good food. And, uh, and that will be it for the year. I don't foresee any real changes in the rules or classes for next year. You know, I've always wondered if we have the right engine classes, because you've got a lot of new engines that have come on the market and whether we needed to change some of the classes due to the new engine sizes that are coming out. But so far, nobody's really complained or said anything. So I don't think they'll, we'll actually see any real changes. In fact, I've already put the schedule together for next year. Is that online? Not yet, because I really want to take it to the, to the big meeting, the annual banquet, which is the weekend after Columbus Day. That's when we do it at Southport okay. Island and get that, get the uh, race committees to kind of go, oh, yeah, that's OK. okay. I'd like to do more combining, but I don't think they would, because the only one I really could combine would be Friendship and Harpswell. But both of them don't want to be on Saturday because that's a day fishermen can haul. So they think that they'd lose some of the competitors. And I get that. And, you know, it's a distance that's probably big enough, so it's not a big deal, you know. But, you know, it's nice to have two races on a weekend because, you you know, with 11, otherwise you're, you're losing probably at least eight weekends of the summer is done through relapsible racing. Mm. And we start on Father's Day weekend every year. So, and that's what we do next year. No, the only thing that's been coming up, and I don't know if you saw it, it was what's that group that was out in California that sent a let that put the Maine lobster on a, a red list and basically told restaurants not to eat Maine lobster. Oh, and no, I you didn't know, see that. That's a yeah, that's a big issue, and it's an issue that fishermen better take seriously because some of these people they just don't understand, and it was basically. It's based on the fact that they think that uh, lobster gear with the lines in the water entangle whales. Well, we haven't had a whale entanglement, entanglement for over 18 years. And I'm not sure that that one even caused harm to the whale, because a lot of times you can untangle the whale. You just got to get in close enough to untangle yeah. it. And, <clears throat> you know, mostly where these whales have a problem is ship strikes. They're getting hit by ships, you know. It's not the lobster fishermen. And, you know, and the governor, you know, give her credit. She sent a letter to this outfit that put this out, you know, decrying that, you know, they use false information to justify this uh, placement on the red list. Yeah. 
So, you know, hopefully, you know, the fishermen get together and, you know, actually, you know, do something about it before it becomes a real problem. Yeah, right. There's seems like there's too much bad information out there nowadays. Oh, there is. Yeah. Everything's true on the internet, right? Yeah. <laughs> Thank you, John. If you're interested, there are several lobster boat racing videos on YouTube. Next, we have a return of Max Smith, who was on Boat Talk in May of 2015, talking about his new book, Mainers on the Titanic. This time, we'll talk about his latest book, also a tragedy, this time more local, The Bar Harbor Ferry Disaster of 1899. The disaster at uh, the Mount Desert Ferry, the ferry to Bar Harbor, it happened in the town of Hancock, uh, right off Ellsworth. It was just a small piece of land, but it had become very valuable because it had allowed for uh, a very smooth trip to uh, Bar Harbor by train and then by ferry boat. It had become the way to get to the island, and it was very commonplace at the time. <clears throat> On this particular day, this was August of 1899. A special excursion train had been arranged by the Main Central Railroad uh, because the warships of the North Atlantic Fleet were in Bar Harbor for a week for a visit, which was impressive enough. But what had happened was they had just been victorious in the Spanish-American War which had been fought because of the sinking of the USS Maine. So uh, this special excursion train makes its way down on this Sunday morning in August, and that's when the disaster happens. So what happens is uh, this train is about 13 cars long, and before it even leaves Bangor, there were people hanging off it. It's so crowded. It stops in Ellsworth, picks up about 400 more people, and about 40 minutes later, it's at Mount Desert Ferry outside of Ellsworth. Uh, it's running late. Uh, the SAFO is waiting at the pier to take these people over to Mount Desert Island. But a rumor has spread across the train that there's not enough room on the SAFO for all the people. By now, it's mid-morning on a Sunday. These are working class people that have to be back to work the next day. So time is an issue for them. And before the train even comes to a stop, people are jumping off the train while it's still moving to get to that gangplank. And before you know it, the gangplank is crowded. Uh, people are pushing to get on. They're jumping onto it directly. Um, and what happens is the tide's very high and the end of the gangplank that's on the SAFO, on the ferry ship, it's very high up. So it's kind of slow going for this, these hundreds of people that are very anxious to get on this uh, ship. Before you know it, uh, basically there's about 200 people on this gangplank, people on one side pushing because they want to get on and not people not getting on the ship very fast. 
and all of a sudden the gangplank sort of gives a little rumble under their feet and then there's a sound like a cannon firing or something something very loud in fact they thought the uh, ship's boilers had exploded but it was the breaking of the gangplank dropping 200 people into the water and just to set the scene there because the way the wharf was arranged the wharf was on one side the saffo was on the other and then the two piers are along the sides so basically these 200 people fall into a, a cage a watery cage with water about 16 feet high the people in the crowd don't in the back of the crowd don't realize what's happening they hear screaming and calls and they think it's just part of the fun of the morning they keep pushing and about 50 more people go into the water into this um well you call it a cage but it's just a they were bounded on four sides between boats and piers and exactly yeah and probably people on top of people too in that space they yes they uh where the gang uh plank broke it really just sort of funneled people into one area in that small area yes yes Jeez. it was horrific uh, you can't over describe how horrific that was so can you describe the boat a little bit more detail all right the sappho i'm not going to be able to give a lot of specifics but it was basically the lead boat in the main central railroad fleet and the main central railroad as soon as they opened mount desert ferry uh, the traffic was enormous passenger traffic cargo was huge because Bar Harbor was building at the time. And so Sappho was a large passenger ship. Uh, Ten years before this, it had been used as the presidential yacht when presidential uh, President uh, Harrison, Benjamin Harrison, visited Mount Desert Island for a week. He had also come through Mount Desert Ferry. I, the length, I want to say 900 and something feet, but I could be wrong. It was the, the biggest of the passenger transport ships. Um, but it's still, as big as it was, it would not have fit that enormous crowd that came in off the train. Um, uh, as far as power and all that, uh, steam engine, I believe. It was about a 40-minute trip from Mount Desert Ferry over to the wharf in Bar Harbor. Um, and I will say the captain of the Sappho was Captain Dixon, who was a resident of Hancock, Maine. And he was the hero on the ship side of the rescue of this event. He put himself in physical danger, pulling people out of the water. But he had the presence of mind not to move the Sappho. If the Sappho had been moved, these people would have been swept right out into the open water. And a few people were urging him to move the Sappho, but he, he kept a clear head and did not do that. So John, you got some specs on the Sappho? Yeah, what do you want to know? Uh, I saw you looking at it out here. Yeah, uh, what is it 900 feet? 
No. It's 140. <laughs> she's 140 feet long with a 600 horsepower steam engine in her. Her running mate was the Sabona. She was built in Bath in 1886, probably at the New England Company. Uh, she actually saw service in World War One, and then she was sold to New York. And later she went to Pawtucket, Rhode Island and ran there under the name of Pawtucket. And after the war, she returned to Maine and at the snow yard in Brooklyn. And she was used as a freighter in the Chesapeake Bay. And in World War II, the government took her diesel engines and installed it in a patrol boat. So she must have been scrapped at that point. Yeah. That's but that quite, comes from Allie Ryan. Yeah, that's quite a lifespan, though. To, it is for a vessel. I was surprised yeah. she wasn't built by Barber up in Brewer because he loved to build those small schooners and uh, small steamers. And some of them actually worked at Mount Desert Ferry. Huh. Because that's on the on the east side wow. of Hancock Point, and you can still see the the tracks that are still there today. One yeah. thing I want want to say about <clears throat> the Sappho, uh, the 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 uh, latter part of the book is about what becomes of that area of Mount Desert Ferry once automobiles take over. But I print an article about the Sappho's last voyage. Uh, in the in those waters that she had served for so long, and it's uh, quite an extensive story, and it's a sad story. The reporter tells stories of who the Sappho had transported during her career, and just sort of how sad she looked being towed out for that very last time. So, yeah. and the Sabona was there the day of the incident. And there was a third ship, and I do not recall the name that was there also. Well, there's a great big write-up in the Bangor commercial on the whole thing. I can't remember how many pages this thing is. Because I published it once in uh, Maine Coastal News. All right. All right. I do mention how, I think it was Henry Ford, uh, the last of the steamships being the main part of transportation, Henry Ford would travel to Mount Desert Island on one of those ships. I think it was the Sappho, but he would talk with the engineer who uh, was a Hancock native and they had, they respected each other, had a nice friendship. But I comment on how ironic it is that it's Henry Ford's automobile that will take this system of transportation sort of out of, out of the throne that it was in at the time. Yeah. That's uh, yeah, definitely a, a big change, a change in the era, change in lifestyles. So uh, I'll tell you one quick story of a friend of mine. I think I mentioned that uh, they lived right near Hancock Point, where the where the terminal used to be, and she somehow had gotten a story of. Uh, one of the victims who was in the water, the lady somehow survived quite well, but her husband was appeared drowned and there was some wooden, big wooden barrels on the shore there too, somehow washed up or fallen in or whatever. <clears throat> she draped him over the barrel and rocked the barrel back and forth. Uh, this is before the days of artificial respiration, but apparently that that worked because he was revived after several rockings. Uh, 
the barrel the barrel roll was used <clears throat> on anybody who came out of the water that day who was not breathing. It just so happened that a shipment of flour had just been brought in and was in the uh, freight shed, which was all on the wharf there on the pier. And so several victims were rolled over their barrels. And there is the story of a woman whose husband came out of the water. He appeared to be dead, but she insisted that they do the barrel, barrel roll. They did. It saved his life. And it turned out that she was about two or three months pregnant. She hadn't told anybody, but she wasn't going to let them give up on her husband. The name doesn't pop into my head right off, but that story is in the book. Probably the same person. And what they did was, even with the 20 dead uh, victims, before they were completely declared them dead, they still gave that barrel roll technique one more try. Uh, It was quite popular back at the time. Yeah, there's a lot of references to the barrel in here, too. Because the Millers used the barrel and claimed to have saved five people. The Millers? Well, there's a Mr. Miller saved five. William L. Miller of Rice and Miller who was spending Sunday at the bluffs with his family was one of the Bangor men who joined in the life-saving. He dragged out five people and succeeded with the help of Samuel R. Prentice in bringing all of them to life. One young woman was nearly dead when she was taken out and Mr. Miller saw at once that immediate action was necessary and he saved her. She might be the one that was actually pregnant. Doesn't say that here. And uh, you'll find several other names in there too. Uh, in, in a similar situation like that, uh, all over the shore that morning, they, that barrel roll was happening with, with uh, a lot of the people. Um, and what happens is the Bluffs is sort of an elegant hotel right there at the train station and the, fa- the ferry station. And those pe- there's, it's a rural area. They're rather isolated. Doctors don't get there for almost an hour. So the people of the uh, hotel, they have to form together to help people on the shore, but then help those who were injured and required further care. It's quite a story. So how many people actually died? 20 people died. 200 people went into the water when the gangplank broke. Another 50 or so were pushed in in the mayhem. Uh, originally there was almost one full minute where people were just shocked. There was silence and nobody from the crowd and nobody really comprehended what happened. The next few minutes, people were throwing wooden planks and things into this cage, thin area, uh, trying to help, but really doing more harm than good. And, And then finally, Captain Dixon on, from the SAFO, uh, launches a, an organized effort, and then the editor of the uh, Old Town Enterprise at the time organized the rescue effort more on the wharf side, and that's when lives started, started to be saved instead of lost. Well, only 20 people out of 250 is a, a pretty good 
let's get back to the book specifically. Um, uh, you you have photographs in there, and um... uh, no no photographs. There's a picture on the front cover of the, of the Sappho. Um, no, uh, down east really isn't so big into putting pictures into books, and I will say there really weren't a lot of pictures at the time. What I did find was there were drawings of some of the female victims. Now, it took some money and some resources just to get a drawing done of people at the time. So that was quite fascinating, but none of those are in the book, huh. unfortunately. So Down East Press is the, uh, the and available all up and down the coast, I assume. Yep. Any any bookstore, if you can get into a live bookstore, I'd encourage it. You can order directly through Down East Books, and it's online on all the outlets online. But uh, Sherman's, uh, I know Sherman's is good about holding my books, and any bookstore that doesn't have it would be able to order it very, very easily. Uh, what about the inquest? What do you know about it? Fairbanks. Yes, it was quite fascinating. It was a formal thing, but it was somewhat informally done. Uh, the disaster happened Sunday morning. By Sunday night, the coroner was rounding up uh, jurists. It started Monday morning. The verdict came out Tuesday morning at the same time that the dead were being buried. Wow. And it's and I am, I'm not going to tell you what caused the accident, but it was not the crowd on the gangplank. It was something, and it comes out in that inquest, uh, it comes out and it's something that you just kind of scratch your head and shake your head. And, and it's very frustrating when you find out how easily it could have been prevented. Inquest is a good chapter, real good human nature stuff in there. Huh. So we'll we'll leave the uh, the uh, results of the inquest to people to get to find in the book. Yes. Did yep. you that actually was... have the inquest? I uh, in the newspaper accounts at the time, I couldn't find an actual transcript, but I used what was in the newspaper, and I made a point of uh, saying what was an actual quote versus what the reporters had sort of condensed into into words which pa which paper did you use i want it's in the book i'm going to say portland press herald bangor daily commercial uh it was a convenient spot and they were reporters from all the the most of the local and a lot of a few national papers too yeah because the the one i've got in front of me it actually has the testimony Oh, okay. Yeah. And it says um, the question. It actually gives you the question and who uh, asked the question and what the answer was and who did the answer in. Okay. Yes. Uh, my coverage is pretty thorough. I have, I have the testimony of Captain Fairbanks, his wife, his daughter. There were only about seven witnesses, but yeah, I have a, I have a question and answer format where when it was printed in the paper that way, and then I've, pointed out when it's condensed words uh, but i have given that inquest thorough coverage it was interesting to to read about 
Um, I wanted to thank John because when I started to research this, I had reached out to, to uh, Maine Coastal Living. I believe they had done an article on the story and they had an, an original article that I couldn't find anywhere. And he was kind enough to send me the text of that article and it was a wealth of information. So I just wanted to say that it's meant you're in the, the, it's in the bibliography, but I wanted to take a chance and say thank you again. Oh, no problem. Yeah, yeah this is pretty, it's a long article. Yes, and I want to say, the, you know, the book tells about the disaster, but it really tells about, I've tried to note things for history. In the back, it's the list of the doctors and nurses, the almost half the peop, names of the people that went into the water, the, the jurors on the inquest, the witnesses. I've, I didn't focus on the gruesome. I really have tried to make this an accounting because this has been lost to history and it's Maine's worst maritime tragedy. It should not be lost to, history, uh, to time. History should not be lost to time. Only 20 people and this is the Maine's worst disaster, I guess is, well, for the 20 people, um, it was pretty bad, but. No, I know what you're saying and I agree. You know, yeah. I, we're lucky to live in a state where that is the worst disaster. Yeah. Um, and I should say the worst disaster at the time. I should, yeah. Do it. Yeah, because there was one back in, I believe it's, a, she was a sailing vessel that went down off Portland and it took everybody with her. And yeah. she took quite a few people. Yeah. That would have been in the 1830s, I believe. Yeah. Mac, I would like to thank you very much for doing this. And thanks for having me. I appreciate it. And, uh, oh, <laughs> Thanks for coming on talking about the Mainers on the Titanic, too. That was quite interesting. <laughs> yeah, that was my first book, and I appreciated that opportunity also. And, uh, yeah, yeah, hopefully I'll have some more coming along for you to, to read. So. Yeah. Doing this research is fun. Uh, the three of us all like to do this kind of work. It, uh, you know, I, I love the details of history. That's, that's what intrigues me. It's, you see headlines, but I, it's, it's the little things that make the story. Thank you, Mac. That's Mac Smith, author of the new book, Disaster at the Bar Harbor Ferry. John paid a visit to Giffy Full last week, and we tried to zoom but the connection kept cutting in and out so it's the next part may sound a bit fractured but still it's always good to talk with Giffy. Well, that that little motor like my knowledge of it is thin it was uh, belonged to a man that lived over in Rockport a well-to-do gent that I had taken to California and uh, he also had a place on Lake, up on Lake Champlain, and he had this little boat up there, and uh, he had a lot of work done. I think they, yeah, they put a whole new top in her, and he had a, he had a little diesel, two-cylinder diesel engine, but it was raw water cool, but it didn't make any difference up in Lake Champlain. Yeah. And 
he wasn't using her, and he talked me into buying it. <laughs> well, he sold it to me for very, very little money. And I took her, and I uh, I had her a little while, and I wasn't sure what I was really going to do with her, you know. And one of those funny situations, and uh, she was in fairly decent shape. She was... Uh, had been well taken care of, and they put this new Volvo diesel in her. After a while, I had sold her for small money to a couple of guys that were working down at Wooden Boat, which apparently made them uh, special people in their ideas. And I, I sold her to them, and they took no care of it whatsoever. And that. Uh, found out it what really wasn't it, something they were going to use. And she sat there for four or five years and went to pieces. Wow. And uh, mostly the top of her hole, the deck, so bad that, that it happened to the boat. So I got her back, and Peter Chase, with my help, we rebuilt her. We put a whole new my other bigger boat, so I thought, well, at least I'm going to get this thing back and commission again. Doesn't need much work, but it still has to do stuff on it. Right. So I brought her over here. Yeah. So, anyhow, that's the story of the little boat. But she is 100 years old. Where was she built? Cape Cod Dory. When funny part about it is when I was a little kid, that little boat was was a common boat. Man. Wasn't it the Italians that used them? Oh, it wasn't just Italians. I mean, Marblehead had a half a dozen of those boats. But out of Boston, wasn't there a big slew of them that came out of Boston? Not small, but well, they probably yeah, they were probably before my time. Right. So I don't have any memory of it, but there was. I have I have a book here that has a picture of uh, an Italian Boston fishing sloop. Right. Yeah. All all those boats, they had nothing but a make and break into them. Right. And they were used for lobster fishing. Marblehead Transportation Company had three of them just for delivering groceries and ice and stuff to boats. Mm-hmm. And mostly, mostly run by high school kids in the summertime. Right. And that was a big thing for them because they had to learn how to handle a single cylinder make them break into which wasn't easy. Oh, it was easy. But you, you, know, you had to learn how to handle it. After it was running, depended on the knife switch. And when they came into the dock, they knew just how long to pull that switch open. Right. And on the last flip of the flywheel, that put it better. And it went reverse. It went reverse. Boom. Well, you hoped it went in reverse. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Once in a while, it did. That's right. Yeah, yeah. 
but it was it was it was fun. Mm-hmm. Yeah, fun. Did you run one of those when you were a kid? I I no, not really. But I had to go with them, make them break in for them. Right. Yeah, and that one was a single cylinder Hubbard. Uh huh. Yeah, engine everywhere. Right. But there were different engines, mm-hmm. different sizes, and, and, and a little different horsepower. Right. But anybody that had a machine shop could build those engines. Right. Was this the boat that you bought that your father didn't want you to buy? Oh, no, no. That, <laughs> that, that was a Rice Brothers boat. Oh, that's right. Took me spoof bay. Right. And, and <laughs> I was looking at this particular boat. He was a, a regular lad with the engine up forward under a pair of hatches. And she was a pretty little thing. And uh, he, he put her board, put her overboard on her cradle and didn't do it right. So in, in the night, night when the tide came in, she rolled down in, on her side. Right. And filled. And still laying in the cradle full of salt water. And I, I went up to his house found where we live, went up to his house, knocked on the door, and he what do you want? You know, I said, well, I thought maybe you'd want to sell your boat. <laughs> I do. He said, what do you give me for it? Uh, all I had was $30 or something. And he said, I'll take it. And a, a, a local guy said, Got out of the service. He was an Indian, an Indian from the Northwest, blood Indian. But he was a good mechanic. And he went down, opened the engine up. Was it a Rice Brothers engine? No, it was a Star. Star engine. Star engine. And I think they made. I think they made automobiles. Mm-hmm. He was a four cylinder. He got a little one right off. Well, I had to do something. So I was born right in my head down in the cold, in the little harbor where I live. on the morn, and my father, my father knew about it. And, uh, and he had walked up the road with the did you build by that boat I told you to stay away from? I, I, what else could I say? He said, what'd you pay for it? I said, uh, $30. What? He said, you paid $30 for that boat? Oh, God, he said, I'm proud of you. <laughs> How long did you have that boat? Oh, not long, a couple of years. Uh, I, I was, shortly after that, I was and volunteered for the Navy during the war. And I, I sold her for, I don't know, I sold her for 300 bucks or something. Yeah, good profit. Yeah. <laughs> That's Giffy Full and John. We hope to talk with Giffy again soon, this time at the Penobscot Marine Museum, where recording quality will be better. He has so many stories to tell. Next, 
there was a celebration of Mike Joyce's life last Sunday, and here are some short clips from that gathering, starting with WERU volunteer gardener Jimmy Van Curen. Mike reminds me every time I hear his voice of a particular part of a particular garden that I was taking care of. And it must have been when the Blues Hour, Barefoot Blues, was on. I was always in the same section of the garden, and I kept hearing this guy who just seemed to have attitude and stories. And so I got hooked on Mike through the attitude. And then, as time rolled on, um, I'd see him at gatherings, and he'd be off on a bench by himself, and I'd be worried about him. And so I'd go over and sit with him, and we'd start talking. And um, So I heard about the tiny house, and I have a bunch of leftover lumber and beams and stuff from my house. And I said, you should come look at my pile and take what you need. And he came, and it was during pandemic time, so it was like, we sat across my road from each other. He sat on the wood pile, and I sat somewhere. And we just talked and talked and talked. And then he went home, happy as all get out, with just a bunch of extra planks and boards that he knew what he was going to do with. So it was like, and then I had the chutzpah. At one time, there was a um, gathering in Belfast that was related to WERU and I'm blind at night driving and I had the chutzpah to ask Mike if I could crash on his couch and of course he said yes because Mike always does you know anyway it was like that was another opportunity to see the real Mike between two piles of books when he went to bed and two piles of books when I woke up there he was, you know, just this bed full of books. And so I have that image of him always. But he, he just, yeah, and he couldn't, he kept trying to give something back. And I kept saying, Mike, I don't need anything, but if I do, I'll call you. And that seemed to satisfy him enough to move on. But yeah, Mike was just, I just always felt really comfortable with him. Next. Mike's brother, Dan, came up from the Portland area to join the celebration. It's been a wonderful tribute today for, for Mike to be with all the community radio folks of WERU. It's been just a beautiful afternoon of love. Our family motto is love one another. And to see the love for my brother, Michael, a.k.a. Mike, it's been uh, just great to see. WERU meant a tremendous amount to him over the years, over the 30 plus years, and he proudly shared many stories with me about his times at WERU and his ability to connect with the community, and then to see it kind of today live. Um, I know he would have loved this celebration, uh, all the speeches, all the great singers today. It was just uh, a beautiful day of love. So we're, we're, as his family, we're tremendously proud of our brother and we're proud of the WERU community for their outpouring of love today. Thank you, Dan. And finally, Mike's sister, Mary Ellen. I want to tell the story about my kayak that Mike was going to build for me. 
that I gave him some money to build me a wooden kayak because he'd talked about how beautiful it would be. And he started to work on it. And for the years later, I would follow up with him and say, how's my kayak coming? And he would say, oh, it's on my sofa and I've been working on it. Or, oh, it's in my workshop and I continue to work on it. And years went by and I stopped asking. Um, and finally did ask him again. And he said, oh, well, you know how that goes. And I figured that what he meant was he found somebody who would enjoy it and had handed it along. So my question to the group was today, does anybody here have my kayak? I'd sure love to get it back. <laughs> and I'm willing to pay. So if anybody does have my kayak, I'd love to hear from you. <laughs> but that was Mike. Never quite finished anything and found somebody who could use it more. And that will about bring another boat talk to the terminal. If anyone knows anything about Mike's now famous kayak, let us know at WERU. And keep listening to WERU for What Mama Wants, coming up next at 5 o'clock. Thanks for supporting non-commercial community radio.